If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me in them this evening to Mark, chapter 1. Today we step into a book sermon on the Gospel of Mark. At the beginning of every book that I preach, I take the time both to make and provide an outline for the book and to preach a sermon giving us a broad perspective on the purpose and focus of the book at hand. So that as we dig into the nitty-gritty, as we will do over the next many months, we have already established a perspective that the book is trying as a whole to say to us. As we step into Mark, we step into what is often called the Synoptic Gospels. And by the way, if you, uh, before you leave, if you do want an outline for the book, or if you'd like to go get one so you can kind of follow along with me as I preach this evening, uh, they are on the back shelf. I apologize, I did not get them up earlier, but I do have them up now. Uh, so we step into, uh, in the book of Mark, what's called one of the Synoptic Gospels. Now the word gospel, we talked about it a little bit this morning, we'll talk about it a little bit this evening, we'll talk about it a lot more next week, simply means good news. And while we often uh, connect this specifically to what we call the plan of salvation, the idea of the gospel, the good news, actually encompasses the whole of Jesus' person, his work, and his ministry. Uh, when we think of the gospel, again, we often think about salvation, but as we talked about this morning, the gospel is not just something that we enter into, it is something that we are called to live in every day. And so we see this, this idea of a, of a gospel, and when we talk about the gospels, uh, this is a record of the account of Jesus's life. So that the very first verse of the Gospel of Mark says this in Mark 1.1, 1, 1, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So Jesus is introduced here as the Christ and as the Son of God. And the book is introduced as the good news of this man who is the Christ, the Son of God. Now, I mentioned already the idea of the synoptic Gospels. The word synoptic means a summary of the principal parts or the general, uh, a general view of the whole. In other words, when it, the Gospels are called the synoptic Gospels, the idea there is that the Gospels together summarize the whole ministry of Christ. Now, in relation to the Gospels, this term is intended, perhaps somewhat erroneously uh, of sorts, to reflect that the first three accounts of Jesus' life, that would be Matthew, Mark, and Luke are all generally in agreement as to the things that happened within Jesus' life. They share generally the same historical accounts. And this, of course, differs dramatically from the book of John, where you see very little overlap until the crucifixion with the other books. You, you see very little in the book of John that you find in the other three Gospels. Only 3% of the accounts of Jesus' life are unique to Mark. 35% of the accounts of Jesus' life are unique to Luke. 20% of the accounts of Jesus' life are unique to Matthew. And all of this, of course, as I said, is very different from John, which contains very little of that common material. And in one sense, this is a fine way to look at the Gospels, to see that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are all very, very similar. They share many of the same accounts and much of the same ideas within those accounts. But I prefer a different way of organizing the Gospels, uh, well, another one that, that is well understood and well seen. More commonly, I prefer to see the Gospels through the lens of their themes 
rather than as a combined history of Jesus. As a matter of fact, John said at the end of the book of John that if everything were to be written of Jesus's life, the books could not contain it, right? So when we say that the Gospels are a good synopsis of Jesus's life, well, uh, maybe, Uh, They're the things that God desired for us to have passed along to us. Uh, Jesus did a whole lot more than were written in those Gospels, at least according to the Gospel of John. And yet we find this idea of the Synoptic Gospels. And we see that the reason why there are four Gospels written was not necessarily in order that among those four eyewitnesses, they could get all of the details that maybe the other ones forgot or the other ones missed. And through those four Gospels, or or we might even say through those three Gospels, the three which are called the Synoptics, have a better overview of Jesus's ministry. Uh, The Holy Spirit is certainly capable in that the Bible says that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. The Holy Spirit would certainly have been capable of inspiring one definitive account of Jesus' life that could have covered everything so that we would not have needed three or four accounts of such. Now, we recognize that historically, the fact that there are four eyewitness, independent independent eyewitness accounts uh, gives a tremendous amount of historical validity to the life of Jesus Christ. The fact that you had these individuals who, uh, particularly these three individuals, who all shared that Jesus did these things, and each one is an individual, substantary testimony of what Jesus has done, that, that holds historical weight. That holds testimonial weight. But what we also find is that there's another reason why God inspired four separate Gospels. And that's because each Gospel carries with it a theme, a reason for being, something about Jesus' ministry that it is attempting to highlight and it wants us to carry with us. Matthew is very evidently written as an attempt to convince Jewish readers that Jesus Christ is the Old Testament Messiah. It contains vast amounts of quotations of prophetic fulfillment. It speaks most specifically to the various Jewish traditions and laws. It doesn't pass over anything as it relates to what Jesus was doing and not doing as it related to the traditions and laws. Although it doesn't necessarily see fit to explain the Jewish traditions, Because it's writing to people who, we would presume, knew the Jewish traditions. Unlike, say, Luke, where those explanations are significantly more prevalent. So Matthew is organized in such a way as to highlight Jesus' interactions with Jewish authorities, with Jewish laws, with Jewish prophecies. And it often records very Jewish-centric teachings, such as the Sermon on the Mount, which may have been a singular sermon or it may have been a combination of multiple teachings into a sermon-like idea. Matthew is not intended necessarily to be uh, chronological in its uh, orientation. That's not why it was written. It was written thematically to convince the Jews of who Jesus is, that he is the prophetically promised Messiah. I'm going to skip Mark for a moment. That's where we are this evening. Luke is the chronological historical gospel written by a historian, the man named Luke, who also wrote the book of Acts. And he wrote Acts as a companion work to Luke, recording the history, first of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, then of the early life of his, uh, the life of his apostles and the early life of the church. So Luke is the historian. 
He's the one who gives us the most comprehensive chronological history of the events of Jesus' life. And then the events, of course, of the lives of his apostles in the book of the Acts of the Apostles. Unlike the other Gospels, which are organized by theme, we would believe Luke is actually organized by time, as a historian would organize his history. John is uh, very different from the other three, as we've talked about already. John is absolutely laser-focused on one thing and one thing alone. In John chapter 20, verse 31, John says this, But these are written, that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. That's what John's about. Belief and unbelief. Light and darkness. That's, that is the theme. Everything that John speaks of as it relates to Jesus' life and teachings has, has to do with one theme and one theme only. Do you believe? What does it mean to believe? What does belief look like? What does belief call us unto? There's light and there's darkness. Are you in light or are you in darkness? Are you in or are you out? That's the Gospel of John. And he speaks of this not just as it relates to justification, but also to sanctification. As we see Jesus speak to his disciples as they're on their way from the Passover to the Garden of Gethsemane uh, there in John 12 through 17. And that leaves us with Mark. I've told you several times within the scope of, of my teachings throughout the years that I've never been particularly excited about the way theologians have categorized Mark. Characteristically, uh, they have said that Mark shows Jesus as the Son of God and then also, uh, and regularly, they'll say as the suffering servant. And that's uh, how it's categorized in many uh, systematic books that Jesus Christ in Mark is the suffering servant, uh, sometimes as the Son of God. Uh, Mark is called the gospel of action because the vast majority of the verbs are in the present tense. Mark is jumping from one thing to the next thing to the next thing, and he's doing it in a manner where the actual verbal structure of the sentences is like it's happening before your eyes, almost like you were watching it in a movie, uh, right? So he pared the script down to something that's movie-sized because the book is too big. And, and after he wrote the script, uh, he made it just go, 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 go to get it all in. And that's kind of how Mark is written. Of course, they didn't have movies then, so I'm, I'm working in the vernacular of our day, right? But, but that's kind of how Mark is written. It's intended to show Jesus' connection to the divine part of himself. In contrast to Luke, which we would see presents Jesus as a little bit more of that son of man, a little bit more the humanity, the, his, the history of the man who lived and walked on the earth. Now, as I've prepared for this series and I've studied it, I've come to a conclusion, and I would agree that in consistency with what we read in Mark chapter 1, verse 1, the gospel of Mark definitively focuses upon Jesus as the son of God. And I'm fine saying this in contrast to Jesus as a man, as Luke might present him in history. I like that too. But the thing that was always missing that I think I found now that makes me very comfortable in Mark is the tremendous emphasis which Mark places upon Jesus' authority as the Son of God. And I think you'll see this this evening and of course, we'll highlight it as we go throughout the book. It is fascinating to me as I look through the book of Mark, just how often the idea of Christ's authority comes into the picture. And Mark is not a long gospel. It's certainly the shortest of the gospels. And yet we find this idea of authority all over the place. 
The book of Mark, as we would say with Matthew, is also thematic. As such, it is organized very differently than the other books, of, uh, than the other Gospels. The book of Mark is broken into two primary sections. Mark chapters 1 through 9 is almost exclusively Jesus in Galilee and around Galilee. Now, unlike the other Gospels, we have no record of Jesus coming and going through and to Judea. We have no record of him passing through Samaria. We have no record of him going down for the feasts. We know he did. We know he was down there multiple times a year at the various feast days. We know that he contended with the the, the Pharisees. We know that there were several times where he drove money changers out of the temple. We know that he did these things, but you're not going to find those things in Mark. Mark 1 through 9 is is, is laser-focused on what Jesus was doing in Galilee. And throughout the course of those years that he was up there in Galilee... And this most likely has something to do with uh, the writer of the book himself. Now, the, the last seven chapters are Jesus' final days in Judea. So we follow Jesus down to Judea for his final time, where, of course, then he uh, goes through various interactions, and then he is uh, uh, praised in the garden, and, and he, he's uh, brought before men, and he's tried, and he's crucified, and he raises from the dead, and he ascends into heaven. All of that is in the book of Mark. But only that final time, and again, as I said, this might have something to do with the writer of the book himself. History testifies strongly that the writer of the Gospel of Mark is a man named John Mark, though this is not stated explicitly in scriptures. We know several things about John Mark from the scriptures. John Mark's mother was named Mary, kind of a popular name for the time. There are a lot of Marys. Uh, Here's another one. It was at her house that the church, if you recall, in Acts chapter 12, Peter's in prison and the church is praying for him and he's released from prison and he goes and he starts knocking at the door of the house where they're having a prayer meeting for him. That was at the mother of John Mark's house, the house of Mary. Acts chapter 12 also tells us that Paul and Barnabas, when on their first journey, what we often call their first missionary journey, chose John Mark to accompany them on that journey. According to Colossians chapter 4, verse 10, John Mark was Barnabas' cousin. And so Barnabas wanted to bring his cousin, this young man, we don't know exactly how young he was, John Mark, with them on that first journey. However, according to Acts chapter 15, verse 38, John Mark abandoned them along that journey. At some point, he decided it was time to go home and he left them along the way. This left a very sour taste in Paul's mouth so that when they assembled to do their next journey to go back through the area where they had traveled before and uh, encourage the churches that they had planted on their first journey, Paul said, Mark is absolutely not going with us. And Barnabas said, I want Mark to go with us. And the Bible tells us that so great was their contention over this that Paul and Barnabas actually went their own way. And Paul then took Silas with him, and Barnabas took John Mark with him on their journeys. It would indeed not be until near the end of Paul's ministry, recorded in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, where we find Paul acknowledge that Mark is profitable unto him. And so he encouraged him to come and to be a part of what was happening there. And we see a reconciliation of ministry between Paul and and Mark, thus uh, probably implying that Mark had proven himself, 
that he had not abandoned the ministry a second time. Now, beyond just the scriptures, the record of testimony that John Mark is the writer of Mark is quite extensive in church history. As a matter of fact, I think there's more church father agreement that Mark wrote the gospel of Mark than any other of the gospels as it relates to uh, the synoptic gospels uh, with, with Matthew and with, with, uh, with Luke. Church fathers claimed him to be a companion of Peter, not necessarily an eyewitness of Jesus' ministry. There are many who, did, who believed Mark was not an eyewitness. As a matter of fact, there's many that believe because the church fathers, the early church fathers, were, were so regularly calling Mark a companion of Peter. There's many that believe that, that Mark is actually more a recording of Peter's understanding of the gospel, uh, uh, understanding of Jesus' life, than anything else. So that some believe it's more or less Peter's gospel. Now, this may or may not be so. We do find toward the end of the, of the Gospel of Mark, in Mark 14, verse 51, the record of a young man who was present when Jesus was arrested. And this is a very strange account. The, Jesus is arrested, the disciples flee, and then there's this record of a young man who is there watching. And people try to grab him, and he flees, and he leaves his cloak, and he flees naked away. And the question is, why, why is that in the Bible? And many believe that the reason why it's in the Bible is because that was John Mark. That he was there, that he did not journey from Galilee into Judea with the many other times that Jesus went down there. So he has nothing to say about those times because he wasn't there. But every time Jesus found his way back up to Galilee, Mark jumped in and followed him until the last time where perhaps he went down with them and he saw these things and was able to record them. Uh, uh, possible, maybe, maybe not, don't know. What is clear, however, is that though Jesus' ministry had him going back and forth from Judea to Galilee somewhat regularly, at least for the feasts every year, Mark's focus is primarily upon his time in Galilee, the works that he did in Galilee, and then the final days of Jesus' life and ministry in Judea. And the thing that stands out more than anything to me, as I've said already, is the extent to which Mark goes about to establish the authority which Jesus had in heaven and on earth, and the authority by which Jesus interacted with men and with angels. So let's walk through the book together, as we typically do on a book sermon Sunday. Unlike Matthew and Luke, the Gospel of Mark speaks nothing to Jesus' childhood. Not at all. Mark quotes Malachi 3 verse 1 and Isaiah 40 verse 3 to establish that John the Baptist is the forerunner to Messiah. We'll have a lot more to say about that next Sunday evening. And then he introduces us to John the Baptist who preached the baptism of repentance, the Bible says, for the remission of sins. Not that the baptism itself remitted sins, but rather that the baptism of repentance represented men who had positioned their lives for their sins to be remitted by the same. We'll talk about that next week. And as we would expect of John's ministry, it gives way very quickly to the ministry of Jesus because that was John's ministry. So once again, very quickly, we cover Jesus' own baptism by John, showing that the ministry of Jesus was and would be aligned with the purpose of John under the law. 
And then Mark also very briefly, very briefly, touches upon Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, committing only two verses to that event. We then rush through Jesus' commission of the various disciples in Mark 1, verses 14 through 20, beginning with Simon and Andrew, then James and John. And once again, in this we see that Mark's purpose is not in any way, shape, or form a thorough examination of the minutia arounding, uh, around those that, that were with Jesus or, or, or the things that were happening on a, a simple or a basic level. Not even to focus upon necessarily the important checkpoints in Jesus' life and and ministry, like his temptation in the wilderness. But rather, Mark was going about to establish the facts of Jesus' identity, which are expounded all the more by Matthew and Luke in order that we could get to this, his point, which we begin to see reflected in verses 21 and 22 of Mark 1. There we read this. And they went to Capernaum, and straightway on the Sabbath day he entered into the synagogue and taught... And they were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one that had authority and not as the scribes. This is interesting, is it not? Jesus, having been now baptized by John, commissioned by some, uh, commissioning some of his followers, goes straightway on the Sabbath. There's that active language again, right? We're just moving into the synagogue. This kind of uh, mark in a hurry sort of an idea here. And on the Sabbath day, the Bible says Jesus taught. You know what's interesting about this? Mark tells us nothing of what Jesus taught. Interesting. Well, why would Mark bring it up then? Why is Mark bringing up that Jesus taught on the Sabbath day if he's not going to tell us what he taught on the Sabbath day? Well, you can go to Mark and find out what he taught on that Sabbath day. I mean, excuse me, Matthew, and find out what he taught on that Sabbath day. But that's not Mark's point. What Mark was interested in is this. The people marveled that he taught as one that had authority and not as the scribes, who most certainly would have taught the scriptures as well. But see, Jesus was different. There was something different about him. He had authority that they did not have. He was different because he had authority. He had authority. He had the authority of the Son of God. And this authority was not just reflected in the first event, uh, of, uh, in Mark uh, through Jesus' words, but also through his actions. Verses 23 to 27. And there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? Art thou come to destroy us? I know thee who thou art, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Hold thy peace and come out of him. And when the unclean spirit had torn him and cried with a loud voice, he came out of him, and they were all amazed in so much that they questioned among themselves, saying, what thing is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority commandeth he even the unclean spirits, and they do obey him. Jesus is in this synagogue when a man with an unclean spirit cries against the Savior. Jesus rebukes the spirit, and he commands that that spirit come out of him, and that spirit immediately obeys. And the people are both amazed, and they're actually confused. What just happened here? Is this some new doctrine? This man has authority that we've not seen before. He speaks and teaches, and he teaches as one that has authority. Now he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out because he has authority. He has authority in doctrine. He has authority in spirit. 
And the theme continues as we continue. Verses 29 to 31. And forthwith, when they were come out of the synagogue, they entered into the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. But Simon's wife's mother lay sick of a fever. And anon, they tell him of her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. And immediately the fever left her and she ministered unto them. So Jesus goes into the house of Simon Peter. His wife's mother is laying sick of a fever. He takes her by the hand. He lifts her up. The fever leaves her. And then Jesus, the Bible would go on to say, leaves many who are diseased, receives many who are diseased, many who are possessed. And the city watches as Jesus heals the sick. As he casts out demons, taking authority over illness, taking authority over demons, uh, teaching with authority, the chapter finishing with Jesus healing the great incurable disease of the day with him healing a leprous man. And so what do we find? That Mark 1 is just a litany of Christ's authority again and again, and again. We're not in the nitty-gritty of the stories. We don't know the backstories. We don't know a whole lot of what's going on, but we know this, that everywhere Jesus went, and and, and, and in every situation where there was something ailing a man, Christ had authority over that thing. He had authority over spirit. He had authority over body. He had authority over doctrine. He had authority over it all. And this account in Capernaum begins the first half, chapters 1 through 9, of Mark. Where, as I said, Mark is focused upon Jesus' travels throughout the region of Galilee. It's not long in Mark before we see the next exercise of authority, as well as the next controversy. Jesus is still in this area of Capernaum when a man is brought to him that's sick of what the Bible calls the palsy. But when Jesus goes to heal this man, he says in Mark chapter 2, verse 5, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. The Bible says, But there were certain of the scribes sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why doth this man speak blasphemies? Who can forgive sins, uh, who can forgive sins but God only? So here, chapter 1 says Jesus has power over body, over illness, over the spiritual, over demons. He has authority as it relates to his teaching and his doctrine. But when Jesus heals this man who is sick of the palsy, he does something different this time. He says to this man, thy sins be forgiven thee. And this immediately perks the interest and the ire of the scribes who are watching Yeah, it's one thing to see this man do these miracles. What new doctrine is this? He's teaching with all of this authority. But all of a sudden, he just said, I forgive your sins. Your sins are forgiven. And they say, wait a minute. Only God can forgive sins. And this introduces the authority conflict of the book. Whereby Jesus who claimed to be the Son of God and all power and authority, would stand in conflict to a nation and its leaders who desired to maintain their own authority, who operated in natural contradiction to Christ's authority. Would they accept Jesus as the Son of God or would they reject His authority? Well, you all have read the end of the, uh, of the gospel, so you know how that's going to go. But this is the conflict. We're introduced to it. Jesus claims to have authority. 
not just over illness, not just over the demons, but the authority to forgive sin. And now the scribes are not happy. This class is furthermore expressed at the end of chapter 2. In verses 18 through 28 of Mark 2, we see two accounts of Jesus defying the traditions in Israel that had been built up around the law, where both the disciples of John and of the Pharisees questioned why it was that Jesus' disciples didn't fast like they fasted. Jesus responds that the children of the bride chamber don't fast while the bridegroom is present. Because God is here. Why mourn and fast unto God when he's present with you? Then we read of Jesus and his disciples picking corn on the Sabbath day. Jesus stating in no uncertain terms in verses 27 and 28, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man is Lord also of the Sabbath. He does not call himself the Son of God here, but what does he say? But that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. That's authority. So what have we seen in Mark 1 and 2? Jesus exercises authority in doctrine, authority over the spirits, authority over disease, authority to forgive sins, authority. He is Lord of the Sabbath day. We have a trend here. And I think it's a theme that you will see again and again as we walk through Mark. In chapter 3, Jesus heals a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath, bringing together the power that he has to heal a man with the reality that he is Lord over the Sabbath. And at this point, the authorities in the region, the authorities over Israel, are, are in deep conflict with his authority, and they are very upset. And this would seem strange, because all Jesus has done is good works. Jesus has taught doctrine. Jesus has healed the sick. Jesus has cast out unclean spirits. But what Jesus has really done is Jesus has undermined the authority of the powers that be. And this was unacceptable. In any generation, undermining the authority of the powers that be is a threat to those powers, and those powers do not take that thing lightly. So we read... In Mark 3, the first account of the men in power conspiring together, men who would never even normally talk to each other, wanted nothing to do with each other, but decided that the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And so the Pharisees somehow would conspire with the Herodians. When we get there, we'll talk about how interesting that is. To see how they might destroy this man. We then follow Jesus to the seaside. In chapter 4, where Jesus gives the parable often known as the parable of the seed and the sower. Jesus gives the parable, then he is alone with the disciples and he explains it unto them. And he tells them this in Mark 4 verse 11. Unto you it is given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God, but unto them that are without all these things are done in parables. Jesus tells them that he is speaking in parables specifically so that only a subset of men would receive an understanding of the things that he was teaching. And that subset happened to be those who accepted his authority. Those who refused to accept his authority, to them, these things would fall upon deaf ears. It's the same message. 
endowed with the same truths and indeed the same divine authority in it, but it is only given to those who are willing to submit themselves to Jesus as the Son of God. And this idea would be expressed in a powerful way once the seaside sermon was complete. For Jesus exhorts the disciples that they would pass over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee in a ship. And as Jesus was sleeping on the ship, the Bible says that a storm arose. And the disciples woke him, and we read this in Mark 4, verses 39 to 41. And he arose and rebuked the wind. And he said unto the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said unto them, Why are ye so fearful? How is it that ye have no faith? And they feared exceedingly and said one to another, What manner of man is this? that even the wind and the sea obey him. Even nature itself, the uncontrollable thing that is nature, the thing that pagan uh, religions have for ages and for generations, uh, tried in vain to control through human sacrifices, through cutting themselves, through uh, uh, begging and prayers and everything that they could possibly do to try to manipulate the weather into giving them what they needed. Out of it. We're still doing it today, by the way, aren't we? And yet, this man, with simply his voice, could command the wind and the waves. Because this Jesus is the one who created those winds and waves. This Jesus is the Son of God, He who has all authority in heaven and on earth. In chapter 5, we see this authority play out over the demoniac of Gadara. Before tracing Jesus back to Capernaum to raise Jairus' daughter from the dead and to heal the woman who had been diseased of an issue of blood 12 years. So once again, we up the ante. Jesus has exercised power over demons. Jesus has exercised power over the sick. Jesus has exercised power over the lame. Jesus has exercised power and authority in teaching. Jesus has claimed authority over the Sabbath itself. Jesus has shown power over the wind and the waves. And then Jesus shows power over death itself as he raises Jairus' daughter from the dead. So Jesus has power over the living. Jesus has power over the dead. Jesus has power in heaven, power in earth, authority over all things. Jesus would then go back to his own country, the Bible tells us, where his kinsmen would reject his authority. Mark chapter 6, verse 4. Jesus says unto them, A prophet is not without honor, but in his own country and among his own kin, and in his own house. We then get a parenthetical where Mark commits a good amount of time to the amount surrounding the death, or to the account surrounding the death of John the Baptist, showing that Herod both feared and respected John, but allowed his connections to the things of this world to override his recognition of authority. Herod is the first man who is confronted with the reality of the authority of John and then of Jesus uh, as the one who John heralded, but allowed the things of this world, the concerns of this world, to override that. We do find that, however, in the same passage where Jesus' own 
kinsmen in Nazareth rejected his authority so that the scriptures tell us Jesus could do no great works there because they had rejected him as authority. And this trend would not only condemn John, but eventually Jesus in his day as well. This trend of rejection of authority. We then trace Jesus around the region of Galilee, teaching and doing miracles. The Bible tells us that in chapter 7, he would go to the border of Tyre and Sidon. He would cast out an unclean spirit out of a woman's daughter there in Mark chapter 7. Then to Decapolis, where Jesus would heal a deaf man and he would feed the multitudes. Then to Dalmanutha, also known as Magdala, where Jesus would reject the Pharisees' demands that he give them a sign and warn the people against the false authority of the leaders of the land. Then he'd go to Bethsaida, where Jesus would heal a blind man. Then to Caesarea Philippi, where Jesus would prepare the disciples for his own death. He would be transfigured before Peter, James, and John. All of this leading to the second portion of the book, Jesus' final days in Judea. And to be quite honest, as we walk through the second half of the book, we'll see all of these individual accounts, of which we'll explore in detail as we go through them, but we will see much of the same as it relates to themes. Jesus goes back and forth with the Pharisees in chapter 10, rebuffing their temptations, teaching on the kingdom, healing Bartimaeus in Jericho. But one of the other things which he expressed only briefly in Galilee, yet he focused on strongly in Judea, was teaching the disciples about the authority that they had through him. Now, we, saw, we, would see, we will see this in Galilee with the multiplication of the loaves and the fishes. But here's the thing about the multiplying of the loaves and the fishes. Jesus told them to do it. They said, um, what do you mean do it? And then Jesus did it. Right? He was working on them. But they were not successful at multiplying the loaves and the fishes. Jesus did that. They distributed it. They collected it. But Jesus did that. They cast out some demons in Jesus' name. But they also ran across a demon they could not cast out. And yet as Jesus is now in, in Judea and his disciples are still with him in this final hour, he is very intent on teaching them of their authority through him. In Mark 11, we see Jesus curse a fig tree. Later, the disciples would note that this fig tree had dried up from its roots. And of this, Jesus would tell his disciples thus in verses 22 through 26 of Mark 11. Jesus answering saith unto them, Have faith in God. For verily I say unto you, that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed, and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. Therefore I say unto you, What things soever ye desire when ye pray, believe that ye receive them, and ye shall have them. And when ye stand praying, forgive. If ye have aught against any, 
that your Father also, which is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father, which is in heaven, forgive your trespasses. Jesus seeks to draw the hearts of his followers to understand that they, if they will rightly relate themselves to him, they will forgive others that they might rightly relate themselves to God. If they would submit themselves to God's authority, then they can live in the extension of his authority in their own lives as believers. We'll talk about all that and what it means when we get there in Mark 11. Through faith, they carry Christ's authority with them. And this is an important theme of the second half of Mark's gospel. The first half, proving Jesus has authority. The second half, Jesus telling his disciples that they will carry his his authority with them. We continue then in chapter 12. In chapter 12, we see Jesus speak of his rejection among the Jewish authorities and warn his followers against their lies. Verses 38 to 40. He he said unto them in his doctrine, Beware of the scribes, which love to go in long clothing and love salutations in the marketplaces and the chief seats in the synagogues and the uppermost rooms at feasts, which devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers These shall receive the greater damnation. Then to chapter 13, verse 37. Jesus teaches about the signs of the last days. And as he teaches them of the signs of the last days, in verse 37, he says, What I say unto you, I say unto all. Watch. Be ready. Be ready unto those last days. He's telling them of his authority. He's promising them that he is going to to be taken away from them. He gives them the signs of the last days and he says, as those last days are coming, watch. Be ready. Don't lose focus. In Mark 14, we read of the events of the final night of Jesus' earthly ministry. He eats the Passover with his disciples. He prays in the garden He is betrayed of Judas Iscariot. His disciples scatter. Jesus is tried before the high priest. Peter denies Christ three times. Yet what Jesus says before the high priest is this. When they ask him if he is who he says he is, if he is the Son of God, and he says, I am. And ye shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Jesus made no small matter about the fact that he was coming in authority. Chapter 15 recounts the day of Jesus' death. As Jesus hangs on the cross, he's tried, he's convicted, he's crucified. The Bible says the chief priests, Mark 15, 31 and 32, mocking said among themselves with the scribes, he saved others, himself he cannot save. Let Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. And they that were crucified with him reviled him. We will have spent 14 chapters of Scripture Watching as Jesus claimed authority over heaven and earth, only to see him yield that authority at the cross, 
humble himself before that cross. The chief priests and scribes mocking, saying, He has power. He saved others. But he can't save himself. But after 14 chapters of studying Christ's authority, it becomes apparent that it's not that Jesus Christ could not save himself. It's that Jesus Christ did not save himself. And that was for you, Christian. That was for me that he did that. He humbled himself, as Philippians 2 says, and became obedient unto death. The creator of heaven and earth, who has already shown power over death when he he raised Jairus' daughter from the grave, became obedient unto death. Even the death of the cross. Wherefore, Philippians says, God hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. And so chapter 16 recounts Jesus' resurrection. His commission upon his disciples to go and to tell the world, carrying with them the authority that he had given to them. Verses 19 and 20. So then after the Lord had spoken unto them, he was received up into heaven and sat on the right hand of God. That's a position of authority, Christian. And they went forth and preached everywhere, the Lord working, not in them, the Lord working with them. His power, His authority going with them and confirming the word with signs following. Amen. So ends the final verses of the book of Mark, at least if you have a King James Bible. So Jesus, throughout the course of the book, validates his authority, validates himself as the Son of God, coming with power, coming with authority, leaving that authority with his church as he left. And with that, we think upon a couple of applications this evening. Christian, your response to Christ's authority will define your relationship with God. We live in interesting times. We live in times where the men that have claimed or taken authority, men and women, who have claimed and taken authority for themselves have not earned that authority and have not earned the respect that comes with it. We live in a time with phrases such as trust the experts, trust the science. And yet we find that the more and more our society trusts the experts, the more and more the experts are found to have exercised that authority in vain. We are coming into a time where it is perhaps the case where we are living through a generation uh, that will have a tremendous mistrust for authority, rejection of authority, disinterest in what authorities might have to say. Christian, God forbid, however, that we would ever get this way with Christ and his word. You may not trust any authority in this life. Don't let that taint what you do with this book, Christian. Jesus Christ has proven his authority. Response to authority is such an important thing in the Bible. Let us not lose sight of Christ's authority. Our relationship with God is related to our response to Christ's authority. Christ went and he preached among his brethren, but he could do no mighty works there because they rejected his authority. Let us not do the same.
Jesus went and he taught the disciples and he taught the followers, but he taught them in parables because there are people who rejected his authority and so who were not given to receive the things of the mysteries of the kingdom. Let us not be the same. And we might characteristically call this faith the receiving of Christ's teaching. But the receiving of Christ's teachings begins with the receiving of Christ's authority. Christian, how are you doing as it relates to Christ's authority? Who's on the throne of your heart? Who's in charge? You have never heard me, nor will you ever hear me get up here and ask you to trust Pastor Wickler as it relates to the things of the Word of God. But I will ask you week in and week out to trust His Word. How are you doing? See, if you and I want to receive of the Lord, it's not a mystery how this is going to happen. It'll happen as we submit ourselves to the authority of Christ. One of the common themes of those who I talk to about baptism, and I love to hear it, why we want to get baptized? Because that's what Jesus told us to do. I like that. It's true, it's a public profession of faith in Jesus Christ. We want to make that public profession, confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus, that's true. It's true that it has uh, much uh, behind it of, of symbolic worth as it relates to that passage in Romans 6 where we are buried with him by baptism into death and raised to walk in newness of life. But what a blessing it is to simply hear someone say, Christ has authority, he's told me to do this, so of course I'm going to do it. And as we place him on the throne of our hearts, then we receive from the Lord that which he has for us. We live in a Christian culture in the West that is very happy to receive Jesus' grace. But we also live in a Christian culture in the West that struggles receiving Jesus' authority. But you can't have one without the other. Because the grace that Jesus offers comes through the authority that he has. Jesus has all the power, yes. So that he can do wonderful things in heaven and earth. All that we desire and even see in our lives by way of help and by blessing, yes. But this comes from the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. And if Jesus is the Son of God, Christian, let's treat him like the Son of God. Let's respond to him as if he is the Son of God. Our response to Christ's authority will define our relationship with God. Second, the church carries Christ's authority. What will we do with it? Jesus spent much of the latter time of his ministry, at least thematically as we see it in the book of Mark, encouraging his disciples to understand authority, not just his, but that which he seeks to give to them. To identify Jesus's capacity unto authority and to trust that own authority in their own lives and ministries. Not that they have gleaned in themselves authority, but that they carry with them Christ's authority. To believe what Christ has done and then to carry what he has done into the world that is around us. We live in a time where the church has struggled to assume its authority. We have a wing of the church that is trying to say that they're doing that, but they're doing that in a manner that is entirely unbiblical. They're trying to claim authority over, uh, over storms and, and, and over governments and over uh, individual political leaders or over demonic hordes in the skies. And they're not actually exercising authority over the spiritual. 
We've lost sight of this authority in the West. We act in our own strength. We act according to our own ideas. We look for the fantastic. We want Jesus' authority in the fantastic. But what about the day that we simply need to say, you know what, I'm going to stand up and I'm going to say what is right and trust that Christ's authority can do his work in the hearts of men. Or we say, well, but people might get offended. What does that have to do with anything? Do we carry Christ's authority? Is there power in his message? Is there something we're supposed to be doing with that? And in acting in our own strength and speaking out our own ideas, we abandon the singular power that we have to do anything of value, anything of true effectiveness in this world. The church exists through the power of God. How then can it operate outside of that authority and expect to be effective? Yeah, we can be effective in business. There's a lot of churches that are very effective in business. You don't need Christ's authority to be effective in business. We can be effective in relative reach. There are a lot of ways. I mean, there are books written. There are studies done. There are entire organizations that can help churches be effective in reaching people as it relates to getting the word out. Where's the power of God? Where's the authority of God? How can we be spiritually effective without the the authority of Christ? And over these next many months, this is what we're going to talk about. We're going to see Christ do many wonderful works. We'll connect it to the other Gospels. We'll look at them. We'll walk through them. We'll enjoy what what I hope you enjoy, the parables of Christ and all of his teachings. These things are are, are wonderful to to explore, but it's always going to come back to this. Do you actually believe it, Christian? Do the things that Jesus Christ has, is, are the things that Jesus Christ is saying, are the things that Jesus is doing, are we, are, are, are we acknowledging the authority that he has brought to the table here? And then when he looked at his disciples and said, do ye likewise, what does that mean for us today? It's always good for us to contemplate the life and the ministry of our Savior. But let us take it in this time from this very particular perspective. That we are witnessing the ministry of one who is named Jesus and who is identified as the Christ, the Son of God. A ministry unto which he has committed to us, his church. And the question I leave you with this this evening is what should that mean? for us. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.